This Advent, we'll be exploring a number of visions and images that God gave to the prophet Isaiah. Through them, God will be teaching us about the kind of kingdom he sent Jesus to build and the kind of kingdom Jesus will complete when he returns. Uh, Usually after we finish uh, our scripture reading, I say, this is the word of the Lord, and many of you respond by saying, thanks be to God. We're going to try a new response uh, after our reading today. Uh, The words will be on the screen, um, so just follow along. Our scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 2 today. This is a vision of the future that God gives to the prophet. Isaiah 2, 1 to 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, uh, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, sometimes it feels like hope is in short supply. We all hope that the pandemic will end, but sometimes it feels like this is just how things are now. Others are worried about climate change and the effect that we're having on the world. And whatever you think about climate change, you have to admit that hope is in short supply on this issue. This is especially the case among younger people. Many 20-year-olds have a bleak outlook of the world they will inherit from their parents. As I deliver this sermon, Russia is beefing up its military presence in eastern Ukraine. They took over Crimea a few years ago. What else will they grab? As we sit here, China is getting stronger and more centralized. Hong Kong was fully absorbed this past year. Could Taiwan be next? All this is unsettling. It makes it hard to hope for a peaceful future. It's safe to say that hope is in short supply in the Christian Reformed Church these days, too. It's been two years since our ruling body, Synod, has met. And in the meantime, all kinds of difficult things have happened. Our executive director resigned. Our Canadian director was let go. Issues of binationality, Canada, United States, are front and center, and we're also trying to digest and make sense of the human sexuality report right in the middle of all this trouble. It's hard to say what the future holds for 
our slowly shrinking denomination. I hope to be a pastor for the foreseeable future, but sometimes I worry. It's hard to live vibrantly and generously when hope is in short supply. Fear of the future makes us short-sighted and anxious. We grab instead of share. We build walls instead of build, building relationships. You can see this happening in British Columbia right now with the floods. There's enough food and gas to go around. But when people don't have hope that tomorrow will be stable, they panic by and supplies run out. I wonder what the future holds. Is it reasonable to hold on to hope? Or is that just wishful thinking? In Advent, we ask hard questions like this. Retailers, movie makers, Christmas card companies would like us to think that this is the most wonderful time of the year. Christmas, as our culture, is a time to suspend reality and bury our troubles with presents and eggnog. But the Christian church engages, engages this season differently. In Advent, we remember that God did not send Jesus Christ into the world to rescue it from the most wonderful time of the year. Rather, he came to bring light to those who sit in darkness, hope to those who dwell in the shadow of death. And if there's a place in the Bible where we can go to rekindle hope, it's the book of Isaiah. Isaiah ministered in Israel during Israel's decline as a nation. And so much of the book takes on this uh, kind of uh, not-so-hopeful feel and sound. In sermon after sermon, Isaiah warns God's people. He names their sin. He calls them again and again to repentance. Isaiah chapter 1 ends with the desolate image of a tree that's wilting and dying, of a garden that has no water. The mighty man, says Isaiah, the might, once mighty Israel, will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. These were dark days in Israel. In fact, during Israel's ministry, or Isaiah's ministry, Israel fell to the Babylonians. I imagine there wasn't even a glimmer of hope burning in the hearts of God's people as they were carted off into exile. And yet, sprinkled throughout this often gloomy book, we find these glorious glimmers of hope, like right here in chapter 2. In the last days, says Isaiah, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains, and all the nations will stream to it. They will say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. There he will teach us his ways so that we can walk in his paths. He will judge between them and settle their disputes, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The first thing I noticed about this hopeful vision of the future is that it's a vision. This isn't Isaiah's good ideas or wishful thoughts. This is what he sees. This is what he's given. It comes from above. This is the picture God gives of a future he will make. Second, it's a picture of a restored temple and a restored community. 
In the future, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains, and the nations will stream to it to be taught by God. The temple in Israel's worldview was the site where God's presence resided, and it was the place from which God ministered his blessings to the community. In the temple, sacrifices were made and sins were forgiven. In the temple, the law of God was read and the people were taught the word of the Lord. When the Babylonians invaded, they destroyed uh, the temple in Jerusalem. They thought they had destroyed Israel's God with it, but in the vision given to Isaiah, the mountain of the Lord rises again. They will come to experience the blessings of God. The nations will become, will come to be taught the Lord's ways of peace. This global re-education plan may seem like a new vision, but in reality it's just a reassertion of God's original plan for Israel. Remember that Israel was called out to be a blessing among the nations. When God called to Abraham, he blessed him and said, I will make you a blessing in the world. When God made a covenant with uh, his people at Mount Sinai, he, uh, he did so for the sake of witness in the world. Israel was set apart to be an example. They were given the law in order to showcase the goodness and wisdom of God and so shine in the world like a city on a hill. We're all drawn to people that inspire us, and Israel was meant to be inspiring. So here's an example. You know, whenever I see a husband and a wife that have successfully raised children into adulthood, I have the urge to sit at their feet. Teach me your ways, right? Teach me your ways. I want to be like you. How did you do it? And if they hand me a book to read, I'm going to buy it and I'm going to read it because I see in their family something I want for my family. Well, Israel was supposed to be like this, this model family bearing witness to God's ways in God's world. The problem was that they lost their way and they capitulated to the ways of the surrounding nations. So they uh, did not, uh, they were no longer a light and hence the decline and the need for discipline. But in the future, sees Isaiah, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be raised up and reestablished. And the nations, inspired by what they see going on in Jerusalem, will come and they will say, teach us your ways so that we can walk in your paths. In our current cultural moment, it's hard to imagine people getting excited about being taught by God. To be schooled is to submit, and we don't like to submit. To be schooled is to let someone else shape your mind and your will and your desires, and we don't want to have our mind, will, and desires shaped by someone else. Who are you to tell me what path I should take through life? We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. Though this anti-authoritarian attitude is still prevalent, I sometimes wonder if it's starting to lose its power, especially among the young. Freedom is good, but too much freedom is actually a terrible burden 
It can be exhilarating to forge your own way through life, but it can also be exhausting. Which way will you go? What path will you take? And what do you do when you find yourself at age 30 and you're totally lost in the woods of life? And how do you know that your 30-year-old self will like the path that your 17-year-old self has taken? A little choice is a good thing, but too much choice is exhausting. It creates anxiety, fear, uncertainty about which way to go. People are literally drowning in this sea of choice, and they don't know what to do. It strikes me, perhaps, that there's a hunger growing for good teaching, for a path. I think this is one way to make sense of the Jordan Peterson phenomenon. If you're not familiar with him, he's, he's a Canadian psychologist that works at the University of Toronto, and he got himself into a lot of hot water a few years ago by speaking out against a couple things. Um, Peterson wrote this book called 12 Rules for Life, and it was wildly popular among specifically young men. They flocked to his lectures. He lectured all over the world. People came out, and they flocked to hear him. People are crying, crying as they listen to him. And what does he tell them? He tells them to grow up, to clean up their room, to marry their girlfriends, to take up responsibility in the world. People are crying because they're lost in the woods of life and someone stands up and gives them a meaningful path forward and it feels like life. There's a hunger growing for a different way and I watch with interest to see if this hunger will lead people to want to be taught by God. Teach us your ways, Lord so that we can walk in your paths. And the result of this re-education program, according to Isaiah's vision, will be justice and the creation of a, of a new peaceable community. God himself will settle disputes between them. And then this picture, which is so beautiful. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Weapons of warfare transformed into weapons of well-being. No more will soldiers come home in caskets. No more will innocent bystanders be shot and killed. Basic training, in fact, will be a thing of the past. In God's pictured future, the future he will bring, there is peace. And it will be the result of nations coming up to the house of the Lord to be taught by God. When I look at this picture and I compare it to the picture of the world that we have in front of us today, it's hard to imagine how this picture, this vision, God's vision, could ever become reality. But you know, while it's true that God's vision, the vision laid out here in Isaiah 2, is a long way from being realized, it's also true that in some ways this vision has already been partially realized. I mean, what are we doing here today? 
other than coming together to be taught by God. Think of the ministry of Jesus. Think about who he was and what he did. In Matthew, we read that he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. In John's prologue, John calls Jesus the word made flesh who made his home among us. And the word translated made his home among us, or that phrase, could also be translated as tabernacled. The word Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was the temple before the temple was built. In other words, in Jesus, God was establishing his presence on earth. And when Jesus taught, the people listened. In fact, one day, 5,000 people followed him by foot around the lake just to hear him teach. They didn't even bring food. They skipped their meal because they were so hungry to hear this man teach. Jesus gave his famous Sermon on the Mount on a mount. He was raised up and people came from Galilee, which was the area to the north, from Jerusalem, the area to the south, and Gentiles came from across the lake in the area of the Decapolis. The nations were coming to be taught by Jesus. And what did Jesus say on that, that, in that sermon? Well, many things. But one of the things he said was this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. The disciples didn't understand what Jesus was doing. They kept asking him, Lord, are you at this time going to establish your kingdom? We want to see the mountain of the Lord raised up. We want to see the law go out from Jerusalem. Little did they know that Jesus had come to lay the foundations of a different kind of kingdom. Jesus was raised up on a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem. A weapon of torture was used to kill him, and through his suffering and death, he transformed the cross into a weapon of well-being. And he used it to make peace between God and humanity and peace between Jew and Gentile. And when he was resurrected, Jesus said to his followers, this ministry needs to continue, this teaching ministry. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded, uh, commanded you. I have shown you the path of peace. Now go and be my witnesses in the world. And on Pentecost, when the Spirit of Jesus was poured out on the apostles, the apostles began to preach the good news about Christ's death and resurrection in many different languages as the Spirit enabled them. And people from all over the world heard the gospel in their native tongue. Do you see the ways that Isaiah's picture in some ways has become reality? Today, right now, as we gather, other Christians all over the world are gathering. People from every tribe and nation are coming to God's house to hear his word, to study it, to learn from him the ways of peace. Together we are learning how to live the Jesus way. Together we are unlearning bitterness and envy and the things that lead to war, and we are learning forgiveness 
and love of enemy and the things that make for peace. Yes, there's still a big gap between the picture described by Isaiah and the picture of life today. But when I see all that's taken place to already bring this picture to reality, it gives me hope. Christ is building his community of peace as we speak. And one day when he will return to judge the world and settle disputes, he will make this vision reality and commence his everlasting kingdom of peace. And so we live with that hope burning in our hearts. Hope for us in our church. Hope for the world. Hope for the nations. There is hope. And I have two simple, brief, brief applications before closing this sermon. The first is to you who are listening, who might be searching. You who are tired of living for yourself, tired of free freedom. Jesus says to you this morning, come to me, all you who are weary and anxious, and I will give you rest. Enter my school, take my yoke upon yourself, and I will show you the way that leads to life. There is hope for the weary traveler in a discipleship relationship with Jesus. And what's more, as you come to him and come into this community that is learning the ways of peace, you get to be part of the solution, part of the transformation of the world that God is um, bringing about through his Son and Spirit. The second application is for you who are already following after Jesus. Know today that we've been set apart to be witnesses, to be a beacon of hope in this dark world, a community, a community of peace among the violence. For the sake of this hurting world, let us be good students of the Master and put into practice the things that he has taught us. Let us forgive as we have been forgiven. Let us love as we have been greatly loved. Who knows, who knows who what God will do through our witness? Who knows who God will draw to himself through our life together? O come, O house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, there sure is trouble in this world. We see it, we feel it. Some days it comes real close to our own lives. We feel it in our own hearts. And yet, as we walk, and as we suffer sometimes and mourn what is, Lord, we're grateful for the fire and the flame of hope that is burning within us too. We allow this vision, your vision, to permeate our imaginations today, Lord. Fill us with this hope so that we can not be greedy, but people who share. 
not be scared, but people who welcome. For we know that our future is secure with you. And for the weary travelers among us, Lord, who feel lost in the woods of life, I pray that you come alongside of them today and show them the path of life. We are a community, Lord. We want to be taught the ways of peace so that we can be peacemakers in this world. Continue to be active as a teacher in our midst, Lord Jesus, for the sake of our community and this world that you love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.